You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Washington Post Live. This is First Look, your one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor of the Washington Post. New inflation numbers, same bad result. And like every other economic number that matters to everyday Americans, they're high. Joining me now to explain all of this in plain language, I hope, Damian Paletta, economics editor at The Washington Post. Damian, welcome back to First Look. Oh, it's great to be with you. All right, Damian, um, let's start with the April inflation numbers. They were released earlier this week. 8.3%, still way high. Put those numbers into, into context. What are the biggest takeaways? I mean, you know, in a normal economy, we're shooting for around 2% inflation. And here we are at four, more than four times that. I think, you know, these numbers could likely be even worse next month because in April, when these numbers were recorded, gas prices were actually relatively flat. And in May, they've been bananas. So I think, you know, we're really not out of the woods on inflation. It, it's, you know, kind of frightening, quite frankly, the way rent is going up for so many Americans. As, as I mentioned, gas prices, groceries, there's really nowhere to hide from a lot of these things. It's not like people can just decide, well, I'll cut back on my rent or gasoline for my car. I mean, these are parts of people's everyday life. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's really kind of tough. I mean, with the, the Fed is obviously moving really aggressively to raise interest rates, which is going to cool off the economy. And we're seeing that with the stock market, especially technology stocks have been hammered. Um, cryptocurrencies have been getting hammered. So, you know, whether all that translates into people spending less money, um, that could lead to a, a kind of a cooling economy that would bring it re- inflation down. But right now we're kind of caught in between all these different things. It's, it's really kind right. of uh, a, been a tough week. So let me understand something, Damien, because I got a little confused when the numbers came out. Is it true that even though the 8.3% is high, but is the silver lining that the pace of inflation it eased? Right? Yes, I mean, I think if we're going to look for a silver lining, we could. You know, it was eight point five percent the month before, and now we're at eight point three. Okay, so we're going down. That's okay. good. We don't want to be keep. We don't want to go be going up. And quite frankly, gasoline and energy is taking up a lot of this. So. These are things that presumably are not going to last forever. You know, we're going to get a handle on the energy crisis that's facing the country, even though that's incredibly painful. So there are reasons to believe. A lot of people, rather really smart people, do believe that perhaps inflation did peak in March and it's going to start coming back down now, which would be great. But I think for a lot of Americans, they want to see it to believe it. And what they see right now is when they go to the grocery store or to the gas pump, prices are still really high. But there are a lot of people who think that maybe we have kind of hit the summit of the mountain and we're starting to come back down. And that's what we're all really hoping for. All right. So let's talk about um, the, the gas prices. President Biden blamed high inflation on, uh, well, on pandemic-related uh, economic disruptions, Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine, uh, and he criticized congressional Republicans' tax proposals. How justified is President Biden in assigning, in assigning blame in all those places? Well, I mean, he, it's interesting, you know, he made those comments the day before the inflation numbers were coming out. And actually, the day he made those comments, we hit record gas prices. So he was clearly in a position where he needed to kind of speak to the American people. I think what, what he's trying to say is, listen, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I'm releasing a million barrels a day. 
from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I'm trying to uh, make it easier to access different kinds of gasoline in the summer, whereas usually there's regulations. It's almost like Congress, throw me a bone, help me out, let's try to do something together. Instead, there's a lot of finger pointing from Republicans that the Biden administration should be doing, you know, more like domestic production and that kind of thing. I think he's clearly very frustrated. You know, his message has changed a lot since last year when White House officials and even Federal Reserve officials were saying that inflation was going to be transitory and it would be over kind of soon. Clearly, that's not the case. So I think we're seeing a pretty, you know, aggravated president here trying to get anyone to help him figure this out. It's really hard. We're seeing inflation all over the world. It's not just a U.S. problem, but it's a huge political problem for him right now. Right. And that's the thing that folks need to understand, not that it makes it any better, but in inflation is a global is a global problem, not just here in the United States, but also high gas prices. Um, that is a, a, a global issue. Let's talk more about the Republicans, because the president uh, criticized Republicans saying they don't have a plan to tamper inflation, that he even criticized the economic and tax proposals of Senator Rick Scott, calling him out by name. How serious are Senator Scott's proposals? And I ask that because even Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and other Republicans won't even touch it. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's a really smart play by the president because it's this like, um, you know, stick of dynamite within the Republican Party, this like kind of kryptonite plan that Senator Scott's really defending, but other Republicans want nothing to do with. And essentially what he would do is he would require every American, his initial proposal was that every American would have to pay some kind of income tax. And the way that the 2017 Trump tax cut worked is a lot of Americans did not have to pay income taxes, maybe you know, like 40% or more, because they pay all kinds of other taxes and they don't meet the income threshold required. So by requiring everyone to pay income taxes, you're essentially raising taxes on the elderly and lower income Americans. And Senator Scott said, well, that's the way you know, I want my plan to be. McConnell's like, listen, let's let the Democrats kind of fight their own battles. We don't need a plan to beat them in the midterms. And so there is this big split within the Republican Party. And what's interesting about Senator Scott is he's not just one of the 50 Senate Republicans. He's the head of the group that's supposed to get uh, Republicans elected to the Senate in the midterm. So it's really hard for Republicans to run from this. It's actually pretty tactically smart for Biden to go after it. Um, we're going to see if he kind of ramps this up as we get closer to the midterms, because Republicans are very uncomfortable, you know, rallying behind the Scott plan. But Scott is insisting on sticking by it. And he says, you know, too bad. This is supposed to make people uncomfortable. This is how I want to like the message I want to send going into November. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty spectacular to have the president of the United States, um, you know, atta rhetorically attacking a member of the Senate from the opposing party by name, someone who's not in the not in the formal leadership, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, of Congress. We've got a, just a couple of minutes left, Damon. Um, uh, let's, can we talk about the stock market? Because yeah, it, it's I mean, sure. it, talk about Friday the thirteenth, Damon. <laughs> so I, I, feel like, I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I'm no, the great reaper with you. I only have bad news. Yeah, so. I mean, obviously, the stock market really rallied. The stock market cratered in March 2020 when you know the economy shut down. Then the Federal Reserve stepped in, Congress packed the CARES Act, and then the stock market rallied and reached like new heights, actually, in the first few months of the Biden administration. did really well. I think the Dow got up above 36,000. A lot of the stock market's run was pushed by a number of technology stocks, Apple, Amazon, um, Netflix, and you know Google and Facebook. So now that the Fed is, is raising interest rates, a lot of people are saying, well, maybe those stocks are a little overvalued. And so we've seen this exodus from these technology stocks, and it's been really brutal. I mean, it's been a 
you know, kind of a nosedive. I think they're down more than 25% this year. Tesla stock is down tremendously this year as Elon Musk has, you know, kind of done this weird dance with his acquisition of Twitter. So it's been a tremendous uh, fall. Now, you know, people who invested in these stocks made a lot of money in the prior years, but now we're wondering, you know, where the floor is. And when we're seeing people running from cryptocurrencies too, you got to think a lot of these kind of speculative bets are making people uncomfortable as we head into the potential, you know, slower economy. And so it's probably not over yet, this kind of volatility in the stock market. Yeah, that's a, some great insight um, that folks viewing technology stocks as overvalued, um, even cryptocurrency getting hammered. And I just want to put you know into context what you were just saying about Elon Musk and, and Twitter. You call it his his weird quote weird dance with Twitter. The news out today that his acquisition of Twitter is quote what temporarily on hold. Uh, I don't quite know what to make of that, but uh, it <laughs> is interesting. And, and and we will well we'll all stay tuned to see what's up with that. Uh, Damian Paletta, as always, we get up and running and have run out of time. Damian Paletta, uh, economics editor at the Washington Post, as always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. We're going to keep the conversation going with the opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my Washington Post columnist colleagues, E.J. Dion and Megan McArdle. Welcome both back to First Look. Thanks Great to be with me. you. Um, earlier this week, President Biden seemed to be testing out some, some messaging on the economy with, with an eye towards the midterm. Uh, let's watch. Americans have a choice right now between two paths reflecting two very different sets of values. My plan attacks inflation and grows the economy by lowering costs for working families, giving workers well-deserved raises, reducing the deficit by historic levels, and making big corporations and the very wealthiest Americans pay their fair share. The other path is the ultra-MAGA plan put forward by congressional Republicans to raise taxes on working families, lower the income of American workers, threaten sacred programs Americans count on like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and give break after break to big corporations and billionaires. I was taking, I was taking notes there uh, <laughs> on what the president was saying. Uh, EJ, is this a compelling message going into the midterms and pick up on what Damian and, I, Damian and I were just talking about, and that is the president of the United States uh, going on offense and naming, calling out Senator Rick Scott, whose economic proposals uh, do all those things the president was just talking about, and the Senate leadership, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and other Republicans are running away from it. Right. Well, you know, when I was watching the president, what came to mind is a favorite adage about war that Karl Rove, the architect of uh, George W. Bush's victories, really liked. Uh, the quote is, the whole art of war consists in a well-reasoned and extremely circumspect defensive, followed by a rapid and audacious attack. And I think that uh, Biden and the Democrats know that if inflation is the central issue and all people are talking about is inflation in the abstract, Democrats are going to lose this election because the party in power is blamed for whatever the economic problem of the day is. 
and you can debate whether they caused it or not. But uh, that whole conversation doesn't help them. And so what Biden is trying to do is, on the one hand, acknowledge the issue because it's on a lot of people's minds. You can't run away from it. Try to defend himself, but then go on the attack and make this not an issue about Democratic performance, but make this an issue about whose policies do you like better? And no one did the Democrats a bigger service than Senator Rick Scott, because he echoed something that a lot of Republicans, by the way, have said for many, many years, which is that over the years, lower income people have been dropped from the income tax. Now, low income people pay a lot of taxes uh, through sales taxes and other means, but they don't pay much income tax. And Senator Rick Scott saying everybody should pay uh, income tax. That raises taxes on poor people uh, and working class people. Uh, Democrats could not ask for a better issue. And so Biden is trying to change the inflation issue into a debate about price gouging, about tax increases on the poor, and about whether you want to cut programs that actually cushion economic distress. And so that's what he was up to this week. Megan, I would love to get your take uh, on on this. Yeah, you know, um, I agree that the Republican plan, I actually think there is a good political economy uh, reason to think that everyone should have some skin in the game on income taxes. Um, you won't want people voting for income taxes that they're not going to pay. But I also think that there are ways that you could structure that, which the Republicans have not talked about, where, first of all, you would ease other taxes to make it revenue neutral so you're not actually raising taxes on on the lower income people. And also so that you've got a kind of like fixed ratio between the highest and the lowest to make sure that we're still we still have a highly progressive system. We're just every time you're deciding to, to vote for something, you're deciding to take money from yourself as well as from someone else. That seems like um, a kind of reasonable check on voting for things that you don't really care. You wouldn't really care to have if you had to pay for them. That said, I don't think that this attempt to, to change the subject is going to work, in part because I don't think there's any question that Joe Biden contributed to inflation. Um, if you look at other countries, yes, inflation is everywhere. It's around the world. But if you look at Germany, inflation is 7%. France, inflation is under 4%. UK, and, and inflation is around 7%. We have consistently higher inflation because we, unlike other those other countries, dumped a ton of stimulus money into people's pockets, courtesy of President Biden. Um, and, you know, he is now reaping the whirlwind for that. There's not a lot he can do. I mean, look, I, politically, he's doing about what I would do, which is try to change the subject as fast as possible. But the fact is, I don't think people are going to be sitting in their, their you know, garages looking <laughs> when, they're, when they're trying to fill up on gas and saying, well, you know, this is bad, but the Republicans have a really bad tax plan. I think they're going to be mad that this is happening. And is that unfair? Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. The Biden administration right. came right. planning to take credit for the vaccines that had been developed under the Trump administration and would have gotten credit if COVID had like obediently gone away. And that's just the way that's what, you, you know, you 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 pays your money and you take your chances when you run for the, for the presidency. EJ, e e <laughs> is it is it changing the subject to put the put, to put the spotlight on a, on a Republican plan that, as you as you were outlining, raises taxes on on poor people, especially when, if you go by history and conventional wisdom, you know it is highly likely that Republicans will retake will retake control of the House and maybe even the Senate. So why not put the focus on them if what they're putting out there 
could be what's voted on and becomes law. Uh, this is an entirely fair thing to do. Every party wants to run on issues that help them and hurt the other side. And Megan being honest enough to defend this idea of raising income taxes on uh, low income people is why this issue is so powerful, because by putting it on the table, uh, Biden is going to force a lot of Republicans either to disown their own party or, or have to defend an idea that most people are actually uh, against. Uh, I would just say back to Megan, poor people already pay more, a bigger share of their income in sales taxes and other taxes than richer people. So the income taxes on the rich just offset those taxes. But yes, Biden is going to try Democrats is to say, if you may be unhappy about certain things right now, but if you really want a mess, here's what happens if you elect these other guys. Uh, and that's what midterm campaigns are about. And the incumbents really want to turn attention to the other guys who might uh, take power from them. Okay, I, I see you, Megan. Megan's just itching to jump in. Go ahead. I think that that is obviously. Look, you want to. You obviously want to run on the weakest point, and I agree. Look, I I'm a libertarian. I'll say I'll say anything, but I understand. You're that my what favorite I say is libertarian, popular. Megan. Thank you. And, and also, like I I will say, I don't think Republicans are going to have nearly as much uh, reticence as you might hope uh, on the on the left that, to to criticize plans from their other party. There's already kind of an ongoing civil war that's pretty obvious to everyone. That said, I think there actually is a danger in doing this. And the danger is that, first of all, it's a little early to be campaigning. Um, and also that it kind of looks like whining, right? It like Voters are not dumb. They can tell when you're trying to change the subject. And when you're trying to change the subject in this way, um, the thing that they can see is you don't have a plan. You don't have any, you know, Joe Biden's plans to put forward to, to actually deal with this are non-existent. I happen to think that that's probably the best he can do, practically speaking. But voters don't want to hear that. Voters want to hear that the government's doing something beyond opening the strategic oil reserves. And Biden hasn't actually said anything that plausibly is actually going to bring down inflation. And so what it looks like is um, I, I got no answers and instead I'm going to start attacking the other guy. And in that situation, I think a lot of voters often think, well, at least the other guy, other guy has a plan. Um, at least the other guy is, is, is trying to do something and you're not. And I will say actually also this, I will reiterate. I think that if we if we raise income taxes, we should lower other taxes on low that, that disproportionately affect low income people. I am not saying we need a net tax increase right. on low income people. Um, Could I just but, say real quick to what Megan said? Oh, go ahead, finish, Megan. I don't want to interrupt. Yeah, you go ahead. It's fine. Uh, you know what I was uh, going to say is I don't think the Republicans have much of a plan to curb inflation either, other than to say let's raise interest rates, which is up to the Fed, or cut government spending. And there again, Biden says, okay, you want to cut government spending? What programs are you kind of going to cut? By the way, is it Medicare? Is it Social Security? And so if they are going to propose an alternative solution, uh, th those solutions are up for attack. Well, let so me just actually, say this. <laughs> Interesting. Megan, this is going to be the last point on this because we have another big issue to discuss. But go ahead. Again, not saying this is a good idea. I would not do this if I were a czar of inflation. But if you want to, to like tax increases on lower income people, actually an inflation fighting tool because it takes money out of the economy in a way that taxing the rich who often buy investment goods rather than like the stuff that's that's rocketing up in price. Um, 
like actually doesn't take the money out in, in quite the same quick way. So actually, just as if you were in an economics textbook, you might actually say that the Rick Scott plan was a good way to reduce inflation, even though I think there are ethical problems with net increasing taxes on lower income people. And I think that politically it's a non-starter, but just from a like technical point, they kind of do have a plan. Oh, wow. Um Okay, EJ, I'm resisting the urge to get you to respond. Do you uh, yeah, respond? No, just that we, <laughs> it, Biden succeeded because we had a lot of conversation about Rick Scott's plan and the problems with it, and Megan actually endorsed it in the end, in her honest way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, okay, um, we can talk. We can spend the 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 rest of the show talking about the economy and going ping ponging back and forth over the Rick Scott plan. We have to talk about Roe v. Wade. And Megan, you wrote this week that we shouldn't expect significant political costs for Republicans in the wake of the of that Supreme, leaked Supreme Court um, draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Why not? Um, a couple of reasons. So basically, the first is polarization. The people who are most active on this issue over the last 50 years, the parties have polarized so that, you know, on one party of the party of like strict bans and on the other party of the party of where where Democratic candidates in red states can't name a single restriction on abortion that they would endorse. This is not where like the median voter is, but it is where the parties are and it's where the activist base is. The problem is that that activist base is activist. They already vote and they're already attached to your party. And so by going, you know, you, you have to service them to keep them in the coalition by by taking these extreme positions, but you don't actually move any votes. So, so a, a pro-choice person who is terrified that Roe is going to fall what can they do other than what they have already been doing, which is voting for Democrats? So that's the first problem, which is that you, it, this is not an issue that actually moves a lot of votes uh, between parties and the people who are highly intense. The second thing is power. And that's what, what political scientists call voter intensity, which is, again, the people who are intense on this issue, the people who really care, are not the people in the middle who have these kind of, well, it should be legal in the first trimester, but you shouldn't have one just for financial reasons. And this kind of complicated, nuanced, maybe you could say muddled view of, of, of when abortion should be legal and when it should be permissible. Um, those people, they have opinions, they identify as pro-choice or pro-life. And for decades, Democrats, and I think Republicans too, have been expecting that if Roe fell, that would move a bunch of those people who say they're pro-choice, but don't necessarily make that their number one issue in a normal election, that they would, okay, now we understand this is real. Well, look at Texas. Greg Abbott has, has basically not paid for a an effective ban after six weeks gestation in Texas. And I think that that is kind of a harbinger of the fact is that that most people have opinions about this. They don't necessarily vote. They don't. Those opinions aren't necessarily very strong. And that's really hard to measure. And especially when there is a constitutional ruling that prevents you from ever passing rules on it. And the third thing is place, which is that abortion um, views vary a lot by location. So Texas is pretty pro-life. Kentucky is pretty pro-life. New York is extremely pro-choice. Abortion law in those places is probably going to reflect the median voter in those places. At least, even if they, they might nominally identify as, well, I don't want restrictions, again, do they care enough to vote against someone who puts those restrictions in place? And it looks to me like the answer is no. And so because of that, even though for the, the intense people on each side, this is something that they gets them out every election, they go to the polls, they vote. I'm not sure that we're actually going to see any political movement. This is a, aside from the practical, should Roe fall, et cetera. But just on the politics of it, I think that the backlash, which Democrats have long expected to materialize, it, it just might never come.
And you know, EJ, um, I would love to get you um, get your take on what Megan argues, which as she walked through, I'm hard pressed to dis to disagree with her, especially after the conversation I had last night with two young women. They're just out of just out of college. They're in their early twenties, and we were talking about this, and they said that their peers. They, they're not moved by, they're not um, excited, meaning agitated, by what's in that draft ruling. And they, to Megan's point, you know, they recognize that, you know, they live in, in blue states, so if Roe is overturned, they'll be okay. But they understand that it depends on where their other peers live that might determine whether they get energized and, active, and activated because abortion services are removed or be made unavailable in their own states. So is Megan right? Is this basically politically neutral? Well, I guess my reply to Megan is while there's a lot to what she says, elections are decided at the margins. And I think a Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade uh, would have three big effects. Uh, one, um, the abortion intensity on the abortion issue has been more on the pro-life than the pro choice side for a long time. This will move a lot of intensity to the pro-choice side so that even if we're not talking about everybody, we're going to talk about the issue, I think, having a different different effect moving in favor of uh, pro-choice voters. Secondly, uh, who gets energized to go to the polls if uh, the Supreme Court overturns Roe. I think it's far more likely that opponents of abortion get mobilized to turn out. Democrats have a huge turnout problem right now, an energy problem. And anything that might ramp up their energy, at least some, um, is very important to them. Thirdly, a lot of these elections are going to be decided by moderate voters in the suburbs, particularly women. All things being equal, some of those moderate voters might say, I'm not really happy, I'll vote Republican. If Roe is on the ballot, a lot of those voters are pro-choice. So I think my disagreement with Megan is not on, there are a lot of legit points she makes, but I think in terms of intensity and where this will affect the elections at the margins, I think Republicans don't want this to be the issue. And mm -hmm. where you see that is in this memo that the Rep National Republican Senatorial Committee put out that essentially advised Republican candidates to run as far away from this as possible. So clearly Republicans are worried about it. All right, we have less than two minutes left. We have to talk about the other big story um, this week, and that is the January 6th committee subpoenaing five Republican members of the House, including House Minority Leader um, Kevin McCarthy. Megan, love your reaction. <laughs> Um, I have a lot of reactions. You know, I have been. I'm we not have a skeptic for one. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm not a skeptic of the, of the committee in that I think I am. I think that January 6th was very serious, and that President Trump should have been immediately impeached and removed from office. Uh, over it, but I also think that what the committee is trying to do is probably not going to work. Which is what they're trying to do is is like indict the whole Republican party to make this into a big issue for voters of the midterms. I'm not saying it shouldn't work. I'm just saying that I don't think it is. I think when you talk to ordinary voters, they're worried about inflation, they're worried about gas prices, they're worried about a bunch of things that aren't what happened a year ago and they just aren't that interested in relitigating it. And so, while I think that this is a kind of interesting inside Washington drama, um, wow. I'm not sure 
that it's going to do the thing that we want, which is to actually put January 6th behind us by proving right. that it was right. a terrible thing that shouldn't have happened. And, and EJ, seriously, we've, I'm giving you 10 seconds because we're already out of time. <laughs> Two things. Um, they're going to say a lot about what those Republicans said, so they're going to try to give them a chance to talk. And if Republicans don't want to talk, why don't they want to talk? And if they can encourage a conversation about that, that would be an interesting conversation for the 1-6 committee. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with EJ on this. EJ, Dion, <laughs> Megan McArdle, we got to go. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.